0: This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rabkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. Coming up, an interview with Adrienne Brodeur, author of the memoir Wild Game.
1: It felt so exciting to be close to my mother, to be involved in something that was, you know, infinitely more action-packed than spin the bottle on the beach or whatever the 14-year-old in me would have been doing. Um, and, I, and I loved helping her, and I loved seeing her happy. Of course, the decade of deceit really wore me down in ways that I wasn't actually aware of at the time.
0: We'll hear more from Adrian Brodeur in a few minutes. First, I want to invite you to be part of the First Draft community by becoming a member at patreon.com slash Writers. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash Writers. I've heard that it takes listeners seven times to hear a pitch before becoming members. So I invite you to beat the odds if this is one through six, or if it's seven or more, please consider how valuable your patronage is to this podcast. Your support keeps the essential voices of writers sharing their craft and their work over the airwaves. Membership starts at just $6 a month and includes perks like extra cuts from the interviews that don't make the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and perhaps best of all, pitch-free, ad-free episodes every single week. You will receive your own link to an ad-free, pitch-free First Draft feed that you can play wherever you listen to podcasts. So please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters and join the First Draft family. Every month you get a newsletter and at random extra thank you gifts from me. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash First Draft Writers. I have an archive of more than 230 episodes, and I hope that from them you have learned something about craft and heard new and interesting perspectives about the world we live in and our human journey. I know that right now it's unlikely you are in front of a computer, so I'd like to suggest adding a little reminder for yourself for when you get home to contribute to First Draft. Maybe make a note on your phone, an ink mark on your hand, scribble on a piece of paper, something along the lines of, First Draft, reminder, membership matters. I am committed to bringing you in-depth conversations with today's best writers of fiction, nonfiction, poetry, and essays. And I also have a website now. You can find out more about the show at firstdraftwriters.com. Stay tuned at the end of this episode. I'll offer recommendations on other episodes you can dig into. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell your friends to subscribe. Thank you so much. My guest today is Adrian Brodeur, author of the memoir, Wild Game, My Mother, Her Lover, and Me. Brodeur founded the fiction magazine Zoetrope, All Story, with filmmaker Frances Ford Coppola, where she served as editor-in-chief from 1996 to 2002. In 2005, she became an editor at Harcourt. She is now the executive director of Aspen Words, a literary arts nonprofit and program of the Aspen Institute. Adrian Berdure's memoir, Wild Game, tells the story of how a young 14 year old Adrian became her mother's confidant and helpmate in her mother, Malabar's extramarital affair with her husband's closest friend. We began the interview with this question I think it was 40 years ago when you were 14 years old on a warm summer night on Cape Cod. Your mom came into your room in the middle of the night when you were sleeping and woke you up and told you something and asked you something. Can you talk about what that was?
1: My mother came into my room. It was sort of well after midnight. There had been a a boozy party with weekend guests who were my stepfather's oldest friends, the Southers. And she came into my room and woke me out of a sound sleep to let me know that her husband, my stepfather's best friend, had just kissed her. And what I didn't know in that moment, of course, was that this would go on to become an epic love affair lasting a dozen years, and that I would get sort of swept up in the riggings of the whole situation. But I did know, even in real time, that it was one of those before and after moments, that it was a life-altering moment, and that I had, gone from being my mother's daughter and to sort of firmly being in the world of childhood to sort of waking up as her confidant and best friend in this very sort of sexy adult land.
0: The words she used was, I need you. And when I read that, it just seemed I mean, it was so emblematic of things being turned on their head. I mean, maybe your mom says to you, I need you to wash the dishes. I, you know, I need you to go to bed. But in the way that she said, I need you was like, in a way she was pinning you against a wall and also inviting you into this world of hers that you weren't previously in.
1: It did feel desperate. It did feel like this moment, which sounds of course, a little crazy, but I think, you know, the stakes were so high for her and she was falling in love. And I still to this day, you know, am not sure what the perfect storm of ingredients was that she thought I was the person, except I was a malleable teenager who always tried to please her. And I think she was lonely and confused and and needed help and counsel. Um, but of course, like the 54 year old woman that I am today, who has a 14 year old of her own just sees, you know, exactly what a burden and how, how really complicated this made my life for many, many years. But at the time, honestly, it was really thrilling to be a part of it. I, I felt, you know, like most children, I loved my mother. I, I wanted her love desperately. And, you know, it was a way to have this incredible access and intimacy with her, even if it was sort of a, a false intimacy on in some ways. Um, but it was, it was really exciting. I mean, it was a very adrenaline-fueled time. She would have these emergencies and sort of come and ask me the advice as if I was the parent.
0: You know, she said, aren't you happy for me when she was talking to you? And, and you had said it put you in a, Starring role in her drama. And I can imagine as a 14 year old who's just going to school and living a, a, you know, just a normal life, even a life where you're questioning, you know, you had had sort of your first experiences making out with boys and seemed unsure about it, had started going down a path maybe with this one boy that you knew wasn't good. And so this was a distraction for you as well. But you were, and you had said this is your starring role in her drama. Did you ever think about your own life?
1: At the time, no. At the time, I was just reacting. Like, I didn't reflect deeply on how sort of my adolescence and separation had been thwarted and that I had turned towards my mother's sort of emerging sexuality (laughs) instead of my own. Um, I mean, those reflections came to me much later. At the time, it was really um, responding to her need and responding to her joy. You know, she had not been a happy person for several years. She was dealing with a very sick husband and I think a life far different than what she had imagined. And suddenly this opportunity came and she went for it.
0: Once this got rolling, this became the centerpiece of her life. You were complicit in it. And this wasn't, this kiss led to a decade of deceit for her and your complicity and coming up with ideas for them to meet, coming up with covers, entertaining and taking care of Charles when Malabar wasn't home. Can you just talk a little bit about just the the effort that this took and and how you felt about it?
1: It was all-consuming, definitely. Like, this is, you know, the moment of my life that changed everything and became, became my entire life for many years – And as I said, like, while I was living it, there was a certain um, normalcy to it. And And I can't quite explain that other than to say, you know, we only get one set of parents and we only experience one life. And I should also add that in my family, for better or for worse, probably for worse, it it wasn't, she wasn't the first of her generation. This felt like there was a legacy of deception and secret keeping that existed, you know, in the previous generation. And as far as I can tell the one before that. So for instance, in my mother's parents' generation, there was just an abundance of affairs. There was a secret, a family that my grandfather had outside of his marriage. There was just all sorts of stuff going on. And on some level, I think as a young person, I just sort of assumed this was the adult world, um, which sounds incredibly jaded. But I think it was just what I was familiar with, um, and it was also, as I as I said before, which I, I, you know, it sounds so so terrible to say out loud, but it was, it felt so exciting to be close to my mother, to be involved in something that was, you know, infinitely. More action packed than spin the bottle on the beach or whatever the fourteen year old in me would have been doing, um, and I and I loved helping her and I loved seeing her happy. Of course, you know the decades the decade of deceit really wore me down in ways that I wasn't actually aware of at the time. I mean, I essentially started having these incredible stomach pains, this sort of pre-ulcerous condition, which, you know, in our full denial of what was going on after I saw a doctor, my mother and I just assumed it was because I was working too hard at school and, you know, too, perfection, too much of a perfectionist. I mean, it was just we, you know, in that way that you do not see the forest for the trees, um, we we in a bit sp- i mean i should say it's you know probably at that time you know more the parents job to be <laughs> looking out and protecting and understanding what's going on in a child's life but i mean it it just there was no awareness
0: so so much of of your life was on hold um your own growth because of this and were you ever Like lonely or sad at school? I mean, you talked about how you didn't really have a lot of close friends.
1: Well, I think the biggest problem with keeping a secret of this magnitude, certainly, but almost any big secret, is that it keeps you from being known on some very fundamental level. Um, You know, whether that's with friends or a boyfriend or a teacher or anyone who would be there for you, you're holding this huge part of yourself back. And since it was this defining thing in my life, not to be able to talk about it was sort of crippling and isolating in that way. Again, I don't think I realized that at the time so much as as I grew older, as I began to understand what it was doing to me, which really, you know, the first, there were many wake up calls along the way, but the first big one was of course, when my stepfather died and I was a sophomore in college at the time, but that awakening, the guilt and the shame that I felt for not having been a better friend to him, um, you know, even though I was sort of dutiful and I really loved him, but the fact is I tricked him. I was part of this elaborate conspiracy, and um, he certainly didn't deserve that. So there were there were layers of um, reveals, and it wasn't probably until my you know twenties that I really started to understand the damage and the pain it had caused me.
0: The way that you lay out this story is it's in sections. And my reading of it was the first section was probably the mo- most factual, which which I mean to say, you didn't really provide commentary on what was going on, and and part of that I think was reflected in your mind was that you weren't as aware as a as a person in in order to question what was going on. But as you got older, and the and the other sections, you you. Well, you questioned it, and you brought more of your adult sensibility to what was going on. And I'm wondering if, if you were conscious of this in the writing process, I
1: was, but mostly because, you know, in my first draft, my adult self sort of appeared everywhere. You know, <laughs> and she she was in the in the first section. Um, and I actually that was really a part of the revision that I thought. I, I need to let the 14-year-old me and, and, you know, 15 and 16 and so on tell this story without the interference of my adult self letting the reader know how this should make them feel or so on. You know, it, it, this was sort of definitely part of the revision. So I sort of think of the first section as, as really the time of my greatest innocence. Obviously, this thing happened to me then. And then I really started to explore in the second section the fact that, you know, the, the thing that I will always question, which is why did I lean in when I should have been leaning out? Like at some point I became an, an adult and, you know, was was coping with all of this and, and figuring things out, but I would still get sort of sucked back into the vortex of it. And then the third section, of course, is is, you know, reclaiming and and finding my own identity in a truer way and living the life that I wanted to be living.
0: Yeah, I don't think memoirs can be as successful if you're kind of not in the moment that you're living and in the moment with your reader. So I could see how if you were putting all your adult feelings into the beginning, then it would kind of pull the curtain back from the mystery
1: totally and i think i think it's a very natural inclination as a writer especially you know when you're really just working on that first draft and trying to get these emotions in this story and figure out how to unfold the plot you know it's it's complicated as you well know as a writer but then you know i think so much of the beauty of writing and the fine tuning obviously is in the revision and that's where i think in some ways and maybe not the most work, but the most important work happens.
0: There's a moment, I believe it was in the first part, where as the affair goes on, this is, it's very sneaky. I mean, there's a lot going on. Your your mother decides, because Ben is a hunter and a fisherman, and he's trying to think of ways that, that they could be together because they didn't live super close to each other and the couples were really good friends. So Charles and Malabar and Ben and his wife, Lily, really enjoyed each other's company. And in fact, your mom really saddled up to Lily and became more her friends. So they created this, this wild game cookbook where they would cook wild game and, and test out the recipes. And as your mother was getting to know Lily more, she had this point where I think she was looking at photos in their house and she was criticizing Lily because Lily and Ben would go off on these long vacations. And she said, You know, what kind of mother could leave her children for so long? It's monstrous with yes. no awareness.
1: My mother was not the most self reflective person by any stretch. Um, and I think that was something I was trying to show. I, you know, my biggest goal with this book and with portraying my mother and our complicated relationship was not to create something black and white, not to write some kind of mummy dearest, but to show the shades of gray. And my mother did have some marvelous qualities. She was a very self-centered person. And I think, you know, when I was writing the book, actually very early on, I stumbled upon a Vivian Gornick quote um, from the situation and the story that really just guided my writing, which was, in order for the drama to deepen, you must show the loneliness of the monster and the cunning of the innocent. And I think that really informed the book, because I think there's a temptation to put malabar all in the you know the house of the mommy monster kind of persona and there was some of that um she was also you know very loving and great fun and dynamic in other ways and you know you you mentioned the title and i think just as backstory the reader needs to know that my mother was this astonishing cook who had studied at Le Cordon Bleu and worked in the test kitchen of Time Life and had written food articles and cookbooks for much of her life. And Ben, her lover, was this um, avid recreational hunter. And so this was the ruse that they came up with so that they could have these, um, you know, excuses to get together. They were going to create a wild game cookbook together. And, you know, these were sort of decadent and fun nights for both parties. But, yes, yeah, she... She definitely cultivated a relationship with um, Ben's wife, a separate friendship, and she needed to justify and rationalize what she was doing. She also needed, um, on some level, to demonize Lily. I mean, demonize is too strong a word, but she, she definitely had to criticize her, her parenting, her skills as a wife, her just interestingness as a human being but as i became more of an adult and in my own world i did end up seeing lily as just a much more powerful and interesting force than i'd ever understood as a child and i think that was an interesting moment for me because i really had seen the world through my mother's eyes for far longer than most most daughters do
0: well i'm curious what do you think it is so malabar had a very difficult childhood her parents got married and divorced and married again. There were affairs. There was extra, extra secret family on the side that her dad had. There was some abuse and hitting. She got in a really bad fight and got really hurt by her mom. They drank a lot. So she did not grow up in circumstances meant to succeed. And you had a better life than that. But you were also pulled into something that wasn't appropriate for a child. And you were saying earlier that Malabar was very self-centered and I'm wondering what it was that you think about your life that finally gave you sort of a doorway to see and reflect and see that this isn't right, and you were able to heal and move on and have perspective that Malabar never got?
1: Yeah, it's that is a great question. And... um I think there were several things, and I think I'm a fundamentally different person, and we live in a different era and a more reflective time, frankly. I think most people of our generation are more reflective and self-aware than our parents were. Maybe that's not true, but I think it is. So the things that actually helped me were first that The Secret did come out. Um, Lily found out about the affair and suddenly I was able to talk more openly about it and to share the experience with friends and to trust those friendships and frankly to be seen as a whole person for the first time, to be able to admit to my shame, for my involvement, to be able to talk about it, to be able to think about it. You know, I also was in therapy (laughs) for a lot of years, which was very helpful. I I had hit a real crisis in my early to mid-20s where I went through a colossal depression. So therapy helped. And then honestly, and I I know you will understand this um, as a huge reader, I was introduced to literature in a whole new way um, by a woman my father was dating and later married who owned an independent bookstore. And from my first meeting with her, she started to press novels and memoirs and books of poetry and essays into my hands. And this opened new doors because reading is such a fundamentally empathetic act. You leave the bubble of your own experience and you enter something so dramatically different whether it's you know a war zone or the deep south or you know whatever it might be and the books that her, her name is Margot in in my memoir the books that Margot gave me almost always featured a young female protagonist sort of getting her clawing her way out of some kind of pickle. And I think in that way, Margo intuited that I was in real trouble because we didn't know each other that well yet. We we became incredibly close and she ended up being one of my dearest friends over, you know, the next 20 years. Um, But she seemed to understand things that I didn't understand about myself yet. And I'm, I'm recalling that the, in the first batch of books was Zora Neale Hurston's Their Eyes Were Watching God, Jim Harrison's Dalva, and one of Barbara Kingsolver's novels. I think it was um, Animal Dreams, but it might have been Bean Trees. But in, in every one of these cases, it, it gave me an opportunity to see how a, a younger person was figuring out her life.
0: We should mention that as you grew into adulthood and spent more time uh, with your mom and after Charles died with Ben and Lily and their kids, you met their kid, Jack. He was their son. And you ended up moving to San Diego to be with him and then married him. So that really complicated the family dynamics
1: Yes, indeed it did. Yes. I mean, this is, you know, to what I'd said earlier, this is one of those moments where I just so question my leaning in to this convoluted deception that that my mother and I sort of were embroiled in. And I have no doubt that I fell in love with Jack. He's a spectacular guy. We remain friends to this day. But... I did not tell him that our parents were having an affair. There was a fundamental loyalty that was always my mother's, that obviously in a relationship, um, especially in a marriage, you know, it it just shouldn't be that way. That's not, that's not normal. And although the affair came out before we got married, um, we had this opportunity, I think in hindsight to have really, learned from that, to have really said, okay, what was that about? What, you know, let's examine our relationship. Let's examine what's going on here. And once again, on some level, we just chose to sweep it under the rug. Um, uh, uh, Jack did not really want to consider too deeply my complicity. And I think he, in a way that was lovely for me at the time, you know, fully held our parents' feet to the fires, He re- to the fire. He really objected to my mother, objected to his father, thought they were incredibly selfish. His anger was eye-opening to me because he was truly enraged by what they had done and how they'd done it. But in particular to me, I mean, even more so than his mom, I mean, he just felt that to have involved me was horrendous.
0: One of the things that you talk about early on, and he sort of disappears from the book, not completely, but it's, it's, it makes sense that he disappears, is your brother. Because in the very beginning, you're all living in the same house, and then you go off and you do your things. But when this all started, he would walk by the room and see you and your mom talking. And so it it sort of created this separation. And I'm just wondering what what that was like with your brother and how it felt to maybe relive some of that in the writing of this.
1: Yeah, I mean, so Peter was older at the time. He was 16 to my 14, Um, and he was already really starting to separate. But I think it was incredibly painful for him to sort of be on the outs with, you know, what had been not an entirely healthy dynamic but certainly a healthier dynamic and and a and a strong sense of our little family of the three of us because the the fathers orbited my father was you know in every other weekend father who lived in a different state and my stepfather of course who was you know this older man who was quite sick in our house um but the other thing i'll say about this fact and and my brother is that you know it's it's interesting when you write a memoir, that people of course respond by thinking they know the whole story, which of course they do and they don't because any memoir is just a narrow slice of your life and it's a crafted piece of your life, Um, it's a work of art. And I will say that it doesn't take much, I don't think, to imagine that this was not the only secret, that this is, secrets were what my mother trafficked in and we were both involved in keeping secrets. I'm sure he has many that I don't know about and I have many that he doesn't know about. And so in that way, there was never the kind of bond that one would hope a brother and sister have. I think we were always slightly wary of each other. We never fully trusted each other. I mean, this is, this is sounding harsher than I mean to, but I think in that way, we were competing for the affectionate of a kind of elusive person in our life. And sometimes he had it and sometimes I had it. But it was, yeah, I mean, my, my relationship with my brother is, is sad to me. The fact that it felt like we never had a real fighting chance. That said, what I, I will say about us now is... I feel like we've both ended up in very good places in our lives. You know, we've done what we wanted to do professionally. We're married to emotionally intelligent people. And if, and if I can say there's something I'm proud of for both of us, it's that our children are really close friends. So we might have not succeeded in our generation, but I do feel like, you know, the next generation is, is going to be a very different beast.
0: Can you talk a little bit about constructing this? You, you're very clear in the beginning that you created and wrote this memoir from notes and photos and receipts and your own journals, but there are so many really specific conversations. Can you just talk about the process of writing it and, and your thoughts about, you know, the memory where it has to, has to kick in because nothing else sure. can
1: Absolutely. Um, Well, one of the things that made this memoir, I think, easier than some is having parents who are writers. Um, So my mother was a big chronicler of her own life and Frankly, I, you know, one of the first things I did was sort of print out every article she'd ever written on trips and recipes and so on, and I could cross-reference them with my own journals and when we had this meal, and as most people who've read it know, I mean, a lot of it is going from meal to meal, which were very memorable and precise occasions in our lives. Um, you know, she also, when I talked to her about writing the book about five years ago, she did give me access to a lot of her, um, scrapbooks and, and essentially what I would call food journals. Like she went through her life, um, by the food she ate. So, whereas you might go to Paris and talk about (laughs) La Tour Eiffel, you know, she would be talking about the foie gras. (laughs) Um, but you're, you're absolutely on point when you're thinking about the connective tissue, the conversations, what you're you know, what you're feeling. And I think that came more into play or I I realized more fully that that is memory and that is photographs and that is reflecting on meals and trying to, a lot of what I read into my journals was sort of the tissues between the actual big events. So as I wrote Wild Game, I knew almost chapter by chapter The main scene like I knew I was going to have the scene of the kiss, obviously, I knew I would have the scene where my mother launched the idea or my mother and I launched the idea of the wild game cookbook, I, I definitely knew the moments. So the art and the part where imagination and memory really kicked in were sort of on all all the stuff that was in between. And honestly, I think every memoirist will tell you imagination is part of it. You know the intention and the heart of conversations. You're not going to actually remember word for word how people, what people said 30 years ago. Although, although I did, you know, there are many lines of dialogue that are taken directly from my notes when things shocked me or when there were moments of, you know, just where I was stunned by something. Those usually went went into the book verbatim. But you're creating stuff as well. And, you know, you're always trying to stick as closely to po- as possible to the truth and to... Um, what would have been said, what you know you would have said. You're never supposed to obviously say something to further the plot or the the drama that feels in any way disingenuous or untrue.
0: Why was now, although you probably started it a few years ago, the time to write this?
1: I think I have been noodling around this subject matter honestly, for my entire life, not seriously, but but on some level. I mean, I wrote not great <laughs> short stories in my 20s. Later on in my life, I handled it mostly through humor. I wrote um, a modern love piece several years ago that was humorous. And I think often we use humor to deflect the real pain of a situation. I think the game changer for me was Actually, having children and you know, children really require revelation, and it's sort of this instantaneous moment when your relationship to your past and your future shifts. So, I think when I had them, and when I, or even when I imagined having them, I started to understand that despite all the work I felt I'd done on myself personally, that there was a lot of work to do i mean above all i did not want to unthinkingly sort of pass along this legacy or these inherited traumas for lack of a better way to describe them so that really shifted my perspective in terms of how i would write this story and it made me want to handle it in a direct fashion you know as as only a memoir can there was also some external factors, which is I left a career in editing, um, and, and began a career in nonprofit as the director, first the creative director, and then the executive director of Aspen Words. And honestly, it's, it was such a shift in my creative endeavors. And as much as, you know, when you're editing you are working so closely with other people's writing and it's it's just an incredibly time consuming and um creatively taxing job. Um, And in a way what happened at Aspen Words is I, you know, it's also a job I I love and, and I'm very involved in, but it I it wasn't as emotionally or as creatively draining for me. And plus I actually got to witness, for the first time, all these writers who came through our doors, and by that I'm talking about like the emerging writing fellows and the students at Aspen Summer Words, or the writers who were doing the residency program, and just saw people. At a different point in their career than I was accustomed to seeing them when I was only receiving these, you know, finished products of drafts of novels and so on that were being submitted to me as an editor. And I found it incredibly inspiring to see people's courage, to see people just putting it down in, you know, that awful and ugly form, (laughs) a sloppy copy, as my son would say. And um, it, I think it gave me courage. Um, but I, I do find it interesting that I really started this writing, writing process, you know, for the first time when I wasn't an editor.
0: I'm curious about when you write a memoir, you changed almost all the names, but then in the end, you do acknowledgements. How does that, what's the meaning of that?
1: people have asked me this question, although I feel like most memoirists, you know, or a lot of memoirs do this. So when I was writing this, um, I I was fully aware that in this day and age, anyone who actually wants to Google me and look into who my step parents are, who my ex-husband was, you know, it is all information that can be found in under 10 seconds. And so So in in using other names, it was was in part to help me with the writing process to free myself a little bit so I wasn't feeling protective of anyone. But the other thing I really thought about were, although most of the main player in the book are long gone, you know, they have children and grandchildren and nieces and nephews. And I just, for the people who don't really want their full name or their family's name in the book, I thought it gave them a little bit of space. And in the acknowledgments, you know, these are all people I loved and cared about. And what I did change in the acknowledgments um, between the galley, which I don't know if what what you read was a galley, and the final draft was I took out the, this is my stepfather, so and so, thank you to this person. I just thanked the people by name who were influential in my life.
0: Can you read something from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer?
1: Absolutely. So I would like to read from an essay by Virginia Woolf entitled Professions for Women, but it was more commonly referred to as Killing the Angel in the House. And I felt like, I'm sure like so many women, especially those Of us who are mothers, but not exclusively. So I had to give myself permission to step back from any notion of perfectionism relating to domestic life in order to write. And Virginia Wolf wrote and delivered this speech almost 90 years ago, but I think the message is so resonant today Um, because of the time constraints. I'm just going to read and jump around a little bit, but here I go. While I was writing, I discovered that I should need to do battle with a certain phantom, and the phantom was a woman. And when I came to know her better, I called her after the heroine of a famous poem, The Angel in the House. It was she who used to come between me and my paper when I was writing. It was she who bothered me and wasted my time and so tormented me that at last I killed her. You who come of a younger and happier generation may not have heard of her. You may not know what I mean by the angel in the house. I will describe her as shortly as I can. She was intensely sympathetic. She was immensely charming. She was utterly unselfish. She excelled in the difficult arts of family life. She sacrificed herself daily. If there was chicken, she took the leg. If there was a draft, she sat in it. In short, she was so constituted that she never had a mind or a wish of her own, but preferred to sympathize always with the minds and wishes of others. to just skip ahead. Her fictitious nature was of great assistance to her. It is harder. It is far harder to kill a phantom than reality. She was always creeping back in when i thought i had dispatched her though i flatter myself in the end i killed her the struggle was severe it took much time that had better have been spent upon learning greek grammar or roaming the world in search of adventures but it was a real experience it was an experience that was bound to befall all women writers at that time killing the angel in the house was part of the occupation of a woman writer
0: Do you want to say anything else about that?
1: No, not other than the fact that we all have to give ourselves permission to write and to write truthfully. And I honestly also, when I reflected on this essay and this speech, really, as part of this podcast, I thought about how my mother She would have never described herself as a feminist, and yet she was a feminist in this way, that she wasn't going to, in any way, sort of succumb to expectations and domesticity in a way that would get in the way of what she wanted in the world.
0: Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft.
1: As I mentioned before, I always knew where Wild Game would start, you know, that scene where my mother woke me up. But I always was aware that the book needed a prologue, something to sort of set the scene properly. And I cannot tell you how many entirely different draft prologues I wrote. (laughs) And um, it was actually, I I get no credit for this because it was an early reader who loved the book, who wrote some comments for me. And she didn't even know I was struggling with a memory. More, but she just highlighted a small section, not even a full page, of chapter four and said, you know, have you thought about this for a prologue? And it was like the perfect prologue. So I'll, I'll read you. It's a little less than a page. Wild game prologue. A buried truth. That's all a lie really is. Cape God is a place where buried things surface and disappear again wooden lobster pots, the vertebrae of humpback whale, chunks of frosted sea glass. One day there's nothing. The next, the cyclical forces of nature, erosion, wind, and tide, unearth something that has been there all along. A day later, it's gone. Blink and you'll miss your treasure. Blink again and you'll realize that the truth you thought was safely hidden has materialized some ungainly part of it revealed under new conditions. We all know the adage that one lie begets the next. Deception takes commitment, vigilance, and a very good memory. To keep the truth buried, you must tend to it. For years and years, my job was to pile on sand, fistfuls, shovelfuls, bucketfuls, whatever the moment necessitated, in an effort to keep my mother's secret buried.
0: Do you want to say anything else about that?
1: Well, it's one of those instances where the answer had been in front of me the whole time, but it took a collaborative effort to see it.
0: Where do you write?
1: In a perfect world, I write at my desk in my home office in the morning, starting around 5 a.m. for Wild Game. I was always in my office, and I always started by, (laughs) this is going to sound ridiculous, but by playing a whale song softly in the background.
0: What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing?
1: I take a long, long walk. So when I was writing Wild Game, um, I worked on it for about three hours every morning. And then I took a walk that sort of provided me the transition from writer to, you know, my day job as executive director of Aspen Words.
0: Who do you show your work to first to get feedback?
1: I had and have two different sources entirely for early feedback. So I'm in a writing group with just two other women, and we try to meet every six weeks or so to show each other pages and encourage each other, encourage one another. But I also have a friend who's not remotely a part of the literary world, but is just this incredible, exceptional reader and editor of my work. And she just has an ear for every false note and calls me out on them. And I am hugely indebted to her.
0: How have you dealt with rejection? (laughs)
1: <laughs> there, I don't think there's any one answer on that one. I think rejection, I take it on a case-by-case basis. But as long as the rejection is thoughtful, I always try to learn from it. Um, that said, I think we live in a world where it is so easy to reject or criticize from the sidelines, kind of in this anonymous and careless non-constructive fashion, and I am vigilant about not listening to that. Um, There's this great Theodore Roosevelt quote on this subject, which is part of his Man in the Arena speech, and I think every writer and artist should should look it up. I have it taped to my wall. I mean, I have a lot of things taped to my wall, but it starts, and I'm just going to read this, it is not the critic who counts not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done better. And it just goes on to say that the credit belongs to the people who are actually in the arena and working hard, the people who are daring greatly. And I really believe that.
0: And what is your favorite word?
1: That's easy, onomatopoeia. It's just such a fun word to say.
0: You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing. My guest was Adrian Brodeur, author of the memoir, Wild Game. If you liked today's show, check out my interview with a writer you might also enjoy, Danny Shapiro. You can find the entire archive of interviews on my website at firstdraftwriters.com. You can also follow First Draft on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. That's short for First Draft, a dialogue on writing. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including cuts from the interviews from this month's episode that didn't make it into the final show, and writing tips from my guests. Coming up in the next few episodes are interviews with Jeannie Venasco, Ethan Rutherford, Edgar Carrot, and Isabel Allende. A huge thank you goes out to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin, your host and producer. Thank you for listening.